welcome to the Propel Podcast, inspiration and training to grow your church. I'm your host, Larry Witzel. Seventh-day Adventist churches grow differently, and our goal with this podcast is to offer practical training for effective evangelism in the Adventist ministry context. All right, let's talk about the 2024 Propel Conference. We are so excited to announce that the Propel Conference will be coming back to Vancouver, Washington, April 28th through May 1st. This year, we'll be putting a lot more emphasis on innovation with tracks on digital evangelism and reaching young adults. Uh, That's in addition to tracks like we did last year on evangelistic innovation. We're lining up some great speakers and we're getting the website ready still. But for now, please save the date, April 28th to May 1st, 2024, for the next Propel Church Growth Conference. Today, we'll be hearing from David Kleindienst the Evangelism and Church Growth Director for the Chesapeake Conference in Columbia, Maryland, and the speaker for the Forecasting Hope series airing on 3ABN and the Hope Channel. David has preached at evangelistic series across four continents and has a desire to see a passionate, mission-minded, lay-driven church where each member is looking for opportunities to plant seeds for Jesus. In this seminar, David delivers insights into keeping Christ at the center of evangelism while retaining the distinctive Adventist message. He emphasizes the importance of presenting various doctrinal topics in a way that highlights Jesus' teaching and love. David guides us through methods to discuss topics like the Sabbath, uh, the Antichrist, and the Mark of the Beast in a positive way relational manner without compromising the message. He also covers practical aspects of evangelism, like how to interact with the audience, uh, how to respond to their needs and connect to them in a personal level. In many ways, David redefines traditional evangelistic approaches, focusing on integrating Christ's teachings into every aspect of evangelism and church growth strategies. I know that you'll be blessed by this presentation. First, though, I want to mention the sponsor of this episode, Pacific Press, the official publishing house of the North American Division, producing books and periodicals with Christian themes. They publish a full line of materials for children and adults, including a lot of books dealing with biblical and inspirational topics. One magazine I want to highlight is Signs of the Times, devoted to spreading the Word of God and the news of His second coming. It's been in continuous circulation since 1874. Uh, Next year is their 150th anniversary. They also have a Spanish edition, El Centinela, uh, along with many other periodicals, including weekly children's magazines like Our Little Friend, Primary Treasure and Guide, uh, a healthy living magazine, Vibrant Life. And of course, they also print many of the materials used in Seventh-day Adventist Sabbath schools and churches, including lesson quarterlies in various languages. You can order any of these incredible resources online at AdventistBookCenter.com or at an Adventist Book Center near you. All right, with that, let's get into the heart of this episode. Here is David Glindenst presenting a session in the Evangelistic Innovation Track of the 2023 Propel Conference, Preaching Christ in the Doctrines. A number of years ago, I was doing an evangelistic series in a place called North Platte, Nebraska. And if you've ever been to Nebraska, North Platte would be right smack in the middle of the state. It was the last night of a four-week set of meetings. The nightly meet program was over, and I was standing in the lobby talking to people. And a church member came up to me and said, 
I want to thank you for making these meetings so Christ-centered. If I would have known they were going to be like this, I would have invited my friends. When she made that statement, it was like a double-edged sword. On one hand, I was thankful for her kind and affirming words because you know in ministry there's plenty of people willing to criticize, so I've learned to accept when people say something nice. <laughs> but on the other hand, she just told me that she was thankful for the meetings, but she hadn't invited her friends. Now the meetings are over and it's too late. And so I was compelled to ask her, well, why? Why didn't you invite your friends? What were you expecting it to be like? And I will never forget her answer because it is just burned in the psyche of my mind. She said to me that she had invited friends to evangelistic meetings in the past and she was totally embarrassed because they were presented in a very harsh, arrogant, negative, holier-than-thou way, making people who didn't know these truths feel as though they were uh, an inferior person or an inferior Christian. And so she just slumped down in her pew, wishing she had never invited her friends. When she told me that story, I began to realize why she was afraid to invite them. And it crossed my mind to then understand, this is why some people today probably are against public proclamation evangelism, because this is what their picture of it is. Something that happened in the past, some negative experience, and that's what comes to their mind. And so I decided then that when we do evangelistic meetings or personal Bible studies or even just one-on-one -on -one personal conversations that we're going to make it Christ-centered and positive and relational. And that's what we're going to go through in a lot of the topics that, that we cover. So I, I want to share this quote from Ellen White, which you have probably read before. In Gospel Workers, she makes the statement, Lift him up in sermon, in song, in prayer. Let all your powers be directed to pointing souls, confused, bewildered, and lost to the Lamb of God. And let the science of what? Salvation. Salvation be the topic of how many sermons? Every. Every sermon. So does that mean the science of salvation should be the topic of a sermon about the Sabbath? Yeah. Does that mean salvation should be in the midst of a presentation about the Antichrist? or the mark of the beast, Absolutely. or the remnant, yes. or what happens when you die, or the subject of hell, or we could just keep going down the list. She says the science of salvation should be in every message. And so some of the principles that are going to be outlined through the things we talk about are this. All the doctrines, every prophecy of Scripture points to Jesus in some way. So that means there's something in every topic, every passage of Scripture that is going to point me to the cross. My job is to find the bridge in that topic that is going to allow me to make a transition to talking about Jesus and talking about the cross and relating what does that subject have to do with what Jesus did for us. If I can do that, then I have gone a long way in making it Christ-centered and positive and relational. So I'm going to introduce you to a theological term that I just made up, okay? <laughs> it's not at the seminary. You're not going to see it in a textbook. I just made it up. It's called a bridge text. You say, well, what's a bridge text? 
A bridge text is a text in a passage that's going to allow me to make a transition to talking about Jesus and to talking about the cross. And I'm going to show you some bridge texts in a lot of the topics that we're going to cover. Because in every single one of them, there is something there that's going to allow me to pause and make a little transition to talking about what this has to do with Jesus what does this have to do with the cross? What does this have to do with bringing a positive joy into my life? And what these principles are going to do, it's going to teach me to go from just presenting something intellectually to where it's just intellectual information with facts and figures and dates and prophecy charts, as wonderful as those things are, they are only intellectual information. And I've got to transition to being able to reach the heart level to where I speak to people's hearts and their emotions and invite them to make decisions. So that's what we're going to be covering during our time together here. So this slide is probably the most important one of the entire presentation. So you could write this down and probably leave. No, don't actually do that. Um, I think that they're planning, are they planning to send the PowerPoints out? Okay. Well, I mean, all of your slides, because you say you're not going to be able to. No, I won't be able to cover them all, but it's all on the presentation. I'll, I can give it. I can give PDF. I can change it into a PDF, and and they can have all of them. Because there's no way I'm going to be covering everything. It's just not enough time. But these these four questions you will definitely want to to write down, because when it comes to presenting something in a Christ-centered way. That, that doesn't just happen. I don't just get up front and then I start thinking, oh, how can I make this Christ-centered and positive? I actually have to meditate on this for a few hours or a few days before I make that presentation. I can't just get up and, and do it. I have to think about it. And so these are three important questions, actually four. Whatever the topic, number one, how does this topic point me to Jesus? I have to take some time to answer that question in my own mind. Number two, what does this topic tell me about Jesus' love and character? Third, how does this topic point me to the cross? And then, of course, lastly, is does Jesus say anything about this topic? If I will take the time before I make my presentation to meditate on these three or four questions and answer that in my mind and be able to weave it through the presentation, then I will be able to take whatever the doctrine is I'm presenting, whatever the prophecy in Dion or in Revelation I'm trying to share, or whatever the topic is in general, and I will be able to show people what does this have to do with Jesus my relationship with Him, how do I make this positive, how does this topic reach the heart, not just the facts and figures of, of the head. So those are, those are three or four key questions. So now that we have the introduction to it, now we're actually going to do it and we're going to apply it. So what I'm going to do, I've, I've picked out two subjects. After I do the first two, then I'm going to ask you if there's any that you want us to particularly cover. And hopefully, hopefully I have it on the screen. So I'm going to start with the signs of the end. Because every Adventist evangelistic series, every Adventist Bible study set that I know of, has a lesson on the signs of the end, recognizing the period in which we live. So I'm going to throw out a question to you to, to discuss. If I were to ask you, what is the purpose 
of presenting the message about the signs of the end, what would you say? What's the purpose? What are we hoping to accomplish with it? When I first started preaching about the signs of the M, I used to think that my job was just to throw out a bunch of negative statistics to show how awful the world is, and if I have done that, then I've done my job in presenting the signs of the end. I don't think that way anymore. Because if all I do is present a bunch of negative statistics and surveys and bombard people with how evil the world is, then I'm going to be given a message that will quickly become a doomsday message filled with constant negativity and no hope. Now, there's nothing wrong with sharing some of the statistics of what's happening in the world. I do, I do that. My point is it doesn't need to be 75% of my message. Because the truth is, most people, at least that come to an Adventist evangelistic series, most people already know that the world's going crazy. That's why they're there attending it. So I don't have to spend 75% of my message coming up with all of these negative statistics and focusing on the evilness that's in the world. The point of presenting the signs of the end The purpose of the signs is to point me to Jesus and to show the world that our hope is in our need for the gospel. It's okay to present the reality of what's going on in the world. We see that in social media, the news, etc. Nothing wrong with presenting statistics or stories to get people's attention. The point is that that doesn't need to be what the focus of the sermon is. Because one of the principles that we follow is... Whatever your topic is for that night or that Bible study, that's not really your topic. In other words, when we do the signs of the end message, the topic is not the signs of the end. The topic is Jesus. The signs of the end is just the avenue that allows me to talk about Jesus. Same way with the Sabbath or the Antichrist. When I talk about the Sabbath, the topic really isn't the Sabbath. The topic is Jesus. The Sabbath is the bridge that allows me to show what does that have to do with having a born-again dynamic relationship with Jesus. And when you, when you approach topics that way and understand that the signs of the end is important, obviously, but it's secondary, the real subject is I've got to show how this is pointing me to Jesus. Otherwise, people are going to leave having memorized all the, what, 20 or 25 signs of the end. Now, it's nice to know the signs of the end. We should know it. But let's ask an honest question. Does memorizing the signs of the end save a person? Is it going to by itself change the human heart? It's just intellectual information. The point of the signs of the end is I going to make a transition to the heart to show how, how is this showing the person's need for Jesus and what Jesus wants to do for them. Now let's make the bridge to talk about the one who's going to give me hope in the midst of all this uncertainty, all this calamity, all the stuff that's going on within the world. In 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5, that's usually a text that is used in all the signs of the end, messages and Bible studies, etc. And if we were to take time to read that, that's where Paul lists literally like 19 or 20 signs of the end in the last days, what you'll see in society. But at the end of that list on verse 5, it has this phrase where he describes that there will be a form of godliness, but denying its power. 
say, what, what is that? What does that mean? In other words, Paul is saying the world of the last days is not going to be a world without religion or spirituality. There's going to be a lot of religion in the last days, but it'll be a religion without power. Religion without the power to save or the power to point to Jesus. So I can use that now as a bridge to start talking about, okay, contrast the difference between religion on the outside, you know, just going through forms and ceremonies and things like that, and religion on the inside. In other words, what's the difference between religion on the outside, just doing religious things, and true religion of having a born-again relationship with Jesus. So now what this is going to allow me to do is talk about, okay, how do I get the real thing? How do I get true religion? How do I get the relationship on the inside, being born again to know Jesus? And so I'm able to use that sign as a little bridge now to talk about how do you develop a relationship with Jesus? Instead of just saying, hey, the signs point you to the one who wants to save you, which we need to say, i got to explain how to do that. And so now I'm going to take some time in this message, and instead of going over 20 more signs, I want to explain to them, okay, here's how you have a relationship with Jesus. Oh, but, but don't you wait to do that on the night where you talk about salvation? No, we should be explaining that every single night those steps to how to know Jesus. Yes, there's one night where we can go through the steps in detail and that's the only subject for that night, but that needs to be woven through every single topic, even if it's just a few minutes at a time, you know, in, in each message. And so, what, what, at least what we'll do, how do you have true religion? How do you develop a relationship with Jesus? The same way you develop a relationship with anybody. You've got to spend time with the person. And so, actually, yeah, on the first night, we will start taking time to stress the importance of spending time with Jesus every day. How do you have a meaningful daily devotional life? And I know some people kind of raise their eyebrow and think, you're, you're going to talk about something so basic in a prophecy-based evangelistic series? And my answer is yes, absolutely. Because we're going to be mentioning that over and over and over again through all the unique prophecies of Daniel and Revelation. Because I don't want them to leave just knowing what the signs of the end are. I mean, I want them to know that, but that's not the only thing I want them to know. I want them to know how they can begin to take that step to have the real thing, the connection with Jesus. And you'd be, you'd be amazed how many, how many of our own members don't know how to have a daily devotional life. And when you weave that through the messages, that goes a long way in making something Christ-centered, making it positive, and, and making it relational. Th does that make sense? You know, that, that's just one small example uh, of a bridge text that we'll do. We've somehow in our minds, we, we, we put these things on two different spectrums. Prophecy-based things, relationship knowing Jesus. And somehow I've heard people say, it's one or the other. No, you can, do, you can do both. You should. You should do both together. And I know on some spectrums, some people think, oh, you're talking about the relational stuff, so you're not, you're not giving the whole Adventist message. If they heard our series, they would know that we give it straight. I, 
we call out, not call out, we talk about Rome, I talk about Antichrist, we don't skip those things because that is part of our distinctive three angels message. We cannot skip that. But there is a way that as you're even talking about that, I want to weave in how do you make the steps to know Jesus. Otherwise, what good is, what, what good is it for them to know who or what Antichrist is if they don't even have the born-again relationship with Jesus Christ. So, I'm not talking about, and I could give a story, but I can't because it's too close to where it happened. Um, I'm not talking about where it says, you know, Jesus only, Jesus only, forget doctrine, forget this, forget that. Yes, Jesus only for salvation. I completely agree with that. But the Jesus only that says we don't need doctrine, we don't need prophecy, we don't need Daniel and Revelation, that, that's not what I'm talking about. I can assure you of that. The otherwise, what, what's unique about an Adventist evangelistic series? People come, when I, when I do series, I can't tell you how many people come and say, I'm here because I don't hear this anywhere else. I'm not hearing Daniel and Revelation, I'm not hearing these things. And I can tell you the guests... The guests literally come and say, after an hour, because I, I do hour sermons. I don't do this. I, I know today they're saying sermons, we well, should be about 10 minutes, you know, 15 minutes. Seriously. They're saying now 8, 10, 15 minutes. And I'm like, brother, I go 60 minutes in an evangelistic series. And the guests never complain. The only ones who complain, you can guess, is the members. When you're, when you're sharing real things from the Word of God, you know, even the prophecies, but you make it Christ-centered and you weave through there, okay, this is scary, but here's how we can have a relationship with Jesus and have peace. People will listen to that. And I know when we, when we just did series in the church that we attend, I had, two, I had two pews full of teenagers who came every night uh, to be able to hear. If we're passionate, we believe what we're saying, and we show both the uniqueness of it but also how this helps me have a relationship with Jesus, pe people will come. I, I really believe that people will come. So I do want to clarify that because I was somewhere that I won't mention. No, I can't mention. Where I was challenged by some ministers that, I won't say challenged, we had some really nice discussions. <laughs> that they don't see public evangelism as necessary, why is it important to mention Rome specifically and this and that? And I had to explain, I had to explain to them, this isn't, this isn't about calling people out to make them feel bad. God's warning us about, and I see you're getting me off this subject. God's warning us about a, a political and religious institution that would rise in the Middle Ages and do some unfortunate things, just like every church in history has made mistakes at some point. And God is showing us that what happened in the Middle Ages, it's a picture of what's going to happen again near the end of time. We need to share that with people. But we also need to share with them, God is not condemning Catholic people today. They had nothing to do with what happened in the Middle Ages. We're not talking about people. We're talking about an institution that rose up. So God's not speaking of Catholic people today. You know, when you present it like that, we're just showing how Bible prophecy has been fulfilled in the past. People understand that. I rarely get people to get upset with me. 
um, and we, I don't do this, well, it was the church of the Middle Ages. I say it's Rome. But when you can do things in a Christ-centered way, people are willing to hear because, because they understand. So don't think I'm talking about beating around the bush or not being straight. But you know, you can be direct and loving and Christ-centered at the same time. I have, I have two teenagers. <laughs> They're watching to see if this message changes us and the character of our hearts. Do we have the character of Christ? You know, Yeah, I talk about Rome and we talk about Daniel and Revelation. They want to see, is it changing us? You know, and unfortunately, they probably see people in the church that they know it here and they love to give a hardline message, but they don't see the love of Jesus in the midst of it. That, that, would, be my, that would be my guess. And yes, I know, they're going to see that in the world too. You're going to see hypocrites in the world. I know that's no excuse, but it is just, it is the reality. When you're, when you're presenting something in its truth, but with the love of Jesus, you're, you're reaching all age groups. I don't, actually, I don't actually change much of what I do, regardless of what the age group is. Because people are people, they, they, they respond. And so, though I might go a little shorter if it's a group of young people, but I'm telling you, when, when, when they come, they're, they're into it. They're into it just, just as much as, as others are. Um, this is supposed to be at the end, but I'll, I'll put it up. This, this was for the boot camp when I only had 20 minutes. <laughs> this, this website, if you want to go there, it has all sorts of resources and recorded video segments on how to make each topic Christ-centered. Um, so we won't go through 20 today. All 20 will be on that website. It's just five or ten minute um, explanations of how to make it Christ-centered. And then you'll be able to just download different things to read. And you will also be able to go, if you, if you want to see our evangelistic series and you want to see how, how it's done, you're welcome to listen and take anything out of it that you want. Illustrations, points, whatever. And of course, if there's something you don't like, I mean, I hope there's not anything you wouldn't like, but if there is, you can, you know, you can skip over that and you can contextualize it to where, to what God has called you to do. And this would be, this would be the site where you can actually, this is the Chesapeake Conference site here. It's called Forecasting Hope is our series. You can just actually go there, watch it on YouTube, and you'll be able to see illustrated what I'm trying to share in principle. Uh, we've created an evangelism package using these principles that I'm talking about called Forecasting Hope. It's going to be available, I hope, by the end of June, where it's going to be 21 evangelistic sermons, the PowerPoint, the word-for-word -word manuscripts, instructions on how to run a reaping series, and recorded video on how do you make visits to people. Because to, that is one of the reasons churches don't see success in reaping series. They don't visit people. We've bought into this idea that you can't visit people in their homes anymore. If you don't visit people, you are not going to get decisions. I, I will never forget uh, mentoring with Ron Halverson Sr. Uh, I'm assuming most of you probably know who that is. Uh, he helped bring my wife's family into the church. So when I became a minister, I wanted to shadow him, and my conference left me. And I went with him for a whole meeting. And I watched him visit people. I watched what he does. He's actually quite a hilarious person. But I, I remember him saying, David, if you make your visits, you will get your decisions. And in 25 years of ministry, I have found that to be absolutely true. So on this package, we have recorded role plays of how do you visit people. 
How do you visit someone that's come to the meeting and connect with them? How do you visit someone who's accepted Jesus? How do you visit someone who's interested in the Sabbath and who wants to be baptized? Just what questions do you ask? Why do you ask those questions? Because there's a purpose. Because there's no evangelism package out there that has that recorded role plays. And so that's why it's taking so long to do. But that, that'll be out at the end of June. I think they handed a flyer of it at the lunch the other day. And Advent Source will be selling it so you could, you could get the flyer from them. But it's, it's not ready yet. <laughs> okay, let's do 70 weeks. And then I'm going to let you choose the rest. Um, in most Adventist evangelistic series, they cover the 70 weeks. And I do 70 weeks and 2,300 days. I actually do them as two separate presentations because I think it's too much to do in, in, in one. Uh, but to give you an idea, I still cover the 2,300 days. Uh, 1844, everything. I do not skip that, not in a full series. If it's a, a two-week series, obviously you can only pick certain subjects, so you have to leave something out. Um, but let's just start with the 70 weeks. I want to give an example of, okay, how do you make something with dates and prophecy charts? How do you make that Christ-centered? So, actually, I should ask you. I'm going to ask the same question for each topic. If I were to ask you, what's the purpose of the message on the 70 weeks? What are you hoping to accomplish? How would you answer that one? Etc. See, I used to think when I started with the 70 weeks, I used to think, ah, if I can just prove, you know, that last week of that prophecy, if I can just prove that the seven-year tribulation theory is not true in the secret rapture, and I can just get them prove the dates, then I've done my job and that's all I had to do. I don't think that way anymore. Do I want them to know the dates? Of course. Do I, do I want them to know that what that last week represents? Certainly. But I don't need to spend 75% of my message just trying to prove that the last seven years of that tribulation theory is wrong. I don't want to spend 75% of my time talking about the false. I should spend 75% of my time talking about the true and let people see that. And so what we, what we could do here, this is actually one of the most Christ-centered prophecies, probably the most Christ-centered prophecy of the Old Testament, because it's all about Jesus. The whole thing is about Jesus. So this is, the pro, this is the chart. You know, these are charts that we probably give to people in our Bible study series, evangelistic series. If we have personal conversations. We're familiar with this, the dates. 457 B.C., the 69 weeks, you know, the one week, 27 A.D., 31 A.D., 34 A.D. I have to remember something. Now, hear me out on this. This chart by itself doesn't save anybody. These dates, as accurate as they are, do not save anybody. 31 A.D. They could walk out of there memorizing those dates but it doesn't mean their heart has changed. So as much as I want them to know this because it does give us confidence in the accuracy of Scripture and that Jesus is the Messiah, I'm not minimizing that whatsoever. What I'm suggesting is I need to go beyond this because this is the intellectual information. i got to go beyond that to now how does this point me to having a relationship where I actually invite Jesus into my life, where I surrender to Him. That, that's, the, that's the relational aspect. You know, it's not, it's not skipping the intellectual because to study prophecy, you've you got to think with your mind. 
But it's got to go beyond that. That's where decisions come from when I'm speaking to the heart. Nobody's going to make a decision just because it says 27 AD or 31 AD. When people make decisions, it's because the Holy Spirit has spoken, has spoken to the heart and shown how this relates to Jesus. They both, they both go together. So as an example of a bridge text, Daniel 9.24. That's the one where it says God gave the Jews 70 weeks or 490 years to repent because the Messiah is going to come during that time. Okay, I can pause there because this is talking about the Jews how many thousands of years ago. How do I bring that into my life today? I can pause here now and I can emphasize God's mercy and how long he bears with us. How long did he bear with the Jewish people? Almost 500 years. Should it take, should it take 490 years to repent? Probably not. This shows how merciful and patient God is. So now I can tell a story of God's mercy and patience in my life. You see that bridge where it becomes relational? I'm going now from an intellectual fact of 490 years to, okay, let me now tell a heart story. And if you want, it's best if you tell a story about your own life. People relate to that. So maybe I can give a five-minute snippet of how God has been merciful and patient to me in my life. Just give a five-minute snippet of my own personal testimony. Or I can invite someone from my church that I trust (laughs) to come up and share a three or four minute testimony of how they've experienced God's mercy and patience in their life. Now if you do that, pick someone you trust, (laughs) coach them, probably hear what they're going to say first and give them a time frame because you know when you give someone else the pulpit you know you're taking a you're taking a risk so you can decide whether you want to do that but I can share okay here's how here's how God's patience looked in my life and so you see the bridge you see the transition there where I can take prophecy but I can take a little bridge now to make it relational in the sense that I'm telling a story about what's he done for me does that make sense same thing here uh, with oh go back come on in, in verse 25 when it talks about in 69 weeks the Messiah is going to come God wanted God wanted the Jews to accept Jesus and to be saved so now I can emphasize how God wants you how God wants me to accept Jesus why are you delaying and so I can I can take a couple minutes now and I can make an appeal to people's hearts because there's somebody in that audience who's delaying making a decision for Jesus. Just like, just like the Jews did. There's somebody there delaying and so now I can start making an appeal to the heart based on what this text says. That's a transition that makes it, that makes it more relational, brings it into what people are experiencing today. Daniel 9.27 I've had to change how I do this. Verse 27, you know, talks about the last week of that prophecy, the seven, the seven years. I used, I used to spend a whole lot of time showing how the secret rapture theory is not true and the seven-year tribulation, given all the history of where it comes from, Francisco Rivera, all these are the guys, George Irving or Irving Edwards, the Protestant minister that accepted it. I used to give all the history about that. It'd take 20 or 30 minutes, you know. I thought, now wait a minute. 
that's what they remember. Why am I why am I spending that? And I'm not saying it isn't important to share where things came from, but sometimes I think we give way too much detail than people need. I can give the basic idea of how that happened. But in this last week, if this entire last week, come on now. If that whole last week, what happened in the middle of that week? Crucifixion. So instead of taking 20 minutes to talk about this false seven-year tribulation theory, why don't I take that time to talk about what happened in the middle of that week? Because that's what that prophecy is about. Why don't I take some time now to talk about the betrayal and Gethsemane and, and the crucifixion and even the resurrection. I want to spend more time talking about how that middle week is all about Jesus instead of all this time on the false. Because when you see the true and you see... Because if you, if you look at that prophecy and you just step back and you look at it, the whole thing is about Jesus. So why in the world would you get to the last week and think all of a sudden it's all about Antichrist? Because any interpretation of Scripture that takes the focus off Jesus Christ and puts it on Antichrist is a questionable interpretation. And I actually say that in, in the meetings. So this is an example where now we can talk about that last week of Jesus' life even in a prophecy seminar that's about the 70 weeks. And you're being true to the prophecy, but you're bringing Jesus in the midst of that, of that prophecy. Does that make sense? Now, I'm not saying do five texts to where now you're spending 30 minutes and you're completely off of what the original topic was, but you're doing this in little spurts of five minutes, three minutes, you know, four minutes, because you don't want people to lose. You don't want to be going all over the place and you're losing people. All right, we've already talked about that. And then we appeal with John 20, 31, inviting the people to believe in Jesus, have, have their sins washed away. So they're, they're walking away. If I have to choose between people walking away saying, oh, I got the dates memorized, or walking away deciding for, him. Deciding for Jesus, I'm going to choose them walking away deciding for Jesus because I know that if they've truly surrendered to Jesus, that as they continue studying, those dates are going to make sense to them. Does that, does that make sense? If, if they have the dates without Jesus, it's just intellectual. They decide to surrender to Jesus, the dates, the prophecies, the charts, they mean, they mean so much more because now it's connected. It's centered in Christ. And they're more willing to accept it, to be honest. Okay, so now let me throw it out to you all. The typical topics of an evangelistic series. I'll name to you what other ones are on here. You tell me if there's one you would like to discuss. So here's, here, here's what we have. We have, um, we have the thousand years of peace. We have God's law. We have the Sabbath. We have what happens uh, in the state of the dead. We have hell. Uh, we have baptism, which shouldn't be real hard to be Christ-centered. Uh, there's Antichrist, Mark of the Beast, Remnant, Seven Seals, uh, Revelations to women, why there's so many denominations, spirit of prophecy, uh, jewelry and adornment, unpardonable sin. Of all those, is there one that you particularly would like us to talk about and discuss? And, and the Sabbath, of course. What I do is, I don't do, I don't do an entire sermon simply on adornment. It's weaved into something on 
for lack of a better term, you know, some people don't like certain terms, what we would call Christian standards. And so that's where it talks about, you know, tithing and surrendering financially to Jesus, what we watch and put before our eyes and ears, what we feed into our minds, and then what do we communicate through our, our dress. So it's actually a sermon that talks about all of those things. So that's as, that's as close as what you're talking about. Um, if you want to know what we do about the jewelry thing, we can, we can go over that. That's touchy and different in different parts of the United States and different this. Because this, this is something we do near the, end, near the end of the series now where we're inviting people. Now you're having an opportunity to be a witness for Jesus. God wants to use you to be a missionary to others. And we talk about things that could be damaging to our relationship w- with Jesus. I'm going to get asked this question. Now, if I'm doing a two-week series, I don't cover this subject in a two-week series because you you can only pick so many subjects. I only cover this when it's a full four weeks. But I'm going to be asked about this if I don't cover it. Somebody's going to ask me. And you know why somebody's going to ask me? Now, again, that's just my personal preference. I don't think it has anything to do with salvation. That's just my personal preference. I I wore a wedding ring when we were first married, and my wife and I just decided, you know what? Um, Because of some things we see in Scripture, we're just not going to, because I want people to know and believe that we're faithful to each other regardless. But it's not something I make a big deal of. I don't even mention that in the series. But that is why people come up and ask me because, trust me, people who are out there listening, they notice how you act and dress or whatever. Your sermon, your message, you are that message as much as what you're presenting. So I have to present this. And I'm going to be honest, I do this as much for, uh, for the Adventists, not for the same reason that you're probably thinking. Okay? When we cover this... I use the verses that, that most use, you know, 1 Peter 3, uh, 1 Timothy 2, 9 through 10, and just simply share the principles of modesty and adornment in a loving and a kind way. And I let people know this does not pertain just to women. Even though in the text, that's where the focus was with what's happening then, in our world today, when it comes to what I communicate with how I dress or act or what I wear, that applies to everybody. Not just, not just women, that applies to men. And I'll tell stories how I go to the gym. And believe me, there are men at the gym who wear things to show off what they got. So it's not, it's not just for one group. This is all you can do if you choose to present this. That's between you and God and wherever, whatever your context is. I simply present the principles of Scripture in a loving, non-judgmental way, and then I'm inviting them. This is going to be between you and God. You go talk to Jesus about how God might have you apply what we just heard. Because it's true. They're they're going to see other people doing different things, and so this is something I have to leave between them and Jesus. I will present it from Scripture. I will present the principles in, again, a loving, kind way. But if people understand why... Okay, what is really the reason? If it's just, well, you didn't do that. What am I communicating? Am I asking people, am I trying to draw attention to myself and communicate my status, my degree, my wealth, the car I drive, kind of house I have? Am I drawing attention to myself? Or do I want people to see a picture of Jesus in me? Yeah. And if I'm, if I'm doing something that maybe is blurring that picture of Jesus where they're seeing more of me, 
is it possible maybe, the, maybe God is asking you or I to just reevaluate some things? And sometimes with topics like this, where even people in the church see it differently, you have to leave it with the Holy Spirit. And you simply present the principles and you invite them just to surrender and talk to Jesus about it. To remember, you're trying to put yourself in the shoes of where these people are that are hearing. Now for me, I grew up in an Adventist home. My wife grew up Southern Baptist and then went to a Ron Halverson series and their family were, were converted. And so she's gone through the process of what it's like to hear these things the first time and have to make transitions. So she, she kind of understands that. So I try to put myself in people's shoes and understand, okay, they're hearing all these things for the first time. I got to give them some room to grow and some breathing room because I want them to see me I'm on this journey with you. I'm partnering with you. I'm not here, you know, to back you against a wall and point fingers. I'm pointing with you because, you know, these principles apply to me too. If you can come across where I'm joining you in this journey, it's amazing how many, it's amazing how you can talk to people about sensitive things and they'll still walk with you if they see you as a partner with them. The other thing that we want to talk about, because what, what bugs me is when it comes to this subject, we talk so much about what we think the text is saying about what we shouldn't put on that we miss the main point of the text, which talks about what we should wear. Yes. That, that's what the main point of that text is. It's talking about what we should be wearing, which is the character of Jesus and the fruit of the Spirit. I, I, I don't choose to not wear certain things because there's a redemptive value in not wearing those things in and of themselves. The redemptive value is the fact that I'm removing what may be a hindrance to people seeing Jesus in me. And so... I'll be honest, and I will say this at the meeting, because again, I'm at the end of the meeting now, so I've got a relationship with people. I'm talking maybe more to church members. I know people who, wouldn't wear, who don't wear a stick of jewelry, but they're the meanest, nastiest people I've ever met. I wouldn't leave my kids with them for five minutes. And I know people that are just all decked out, because that's where they are right now. But they're a loving, kind person. Their heart wants to follow Jesus. They just, they're just not, they're not on that spiritual, they're not on that spiritual um, spectrum where they're ready to make that choice yet about maybe removing certain things. And so I have to learn to walk with people where they are because I can't force them. I can present the principles and I don't want to chase them but I do want them to know what truth says. Does that make sense? See, with this and subjects like Antichrist and Mark of the Beast, it's actually more how you present it. The tone of your voice. Do they see you as someone that, okay, he gets it, he's not pushing me, but he is sharing the truth. Do they see you as someone they can connect with? You'd be amazed what you can say, how direct you can say things when people know that you love and you care for them. Which is why visitation is important in evangelistic meetings. Because <laughs> it develops trust. 
So anyway, in, in this subject we talk about Galatians 5, 22 and 23 and I will actually spend more time on having the fruit of the Spirit, having the character of Christ in, in our life because that is as important, actually more important than what I'm, what I'm not wearing. And then, I, and then I share with people when they ask me. I'll actually say, and I'll, some of you have asked me, you probably notice I don't, I don't wear a wedding ring, and I will say that in the meeting. That that's just my wife and I's personal preference. Just as we pray through it, we see some things in Scripture. I want people to just see Jesus in me, but I also recognize that there are cultures and contexts where it's actually seen as immoral to not have a wedding ring on. And so that's something between you and Jesus. You, all, you talk to Jesus about that. The same Holy Spirit that lives in me, I believe, will guide you. Amen. Because it is true that there, there are some places where it is immoral to not be wearing a wedding ring. I remember when my wife and I first took ours off and we were, we were younger and we'd go to hotels, you know, in the day and age when it was more frowned upon, they'd look like, oh, okay, not, okay, not married, huh? So I also have to keep that, keep that in mind. But that's my personal choice. Uh, we, we end by, by focusing on this question. Do people see Jesus in you by the way you talk, the way you live, the way you dress? And then I appeal for them to spend time with Jesus. Really? Because I know if they're spending time with Jesus, that's eventually going to take care of itself. I found that out. They, they, they may not, it's not like they're going to hear this message and all of a sudden things are going to come off. For some people that may happen. I've got to give them some time. Especially if they're just hearing this. They've got to process it. But if they're having a daily time with Jesus, after they've heard this, then I'm going to trust the Holy Spirit to do it in His time, not necessarily the time that I'm comfortable with. I'd like it to be now, but I'm not the Holy Spirit. So you can present these things, but again, it's the way, it's the way that we come across in presenting it. Okay. Anyway. Uh, believe it or not, you're, you're going to think I'm weird. <laughs> this is actually almost my favorite topic to talk through. My reason is a little different. The reason that I love talking about this, the Bible is so crystal clear on this, I love seeing the light go on in people's eyes. When they, when they finally understand, oh, hell does not burn forever, and here's why, and it goes out, and they see the texts, and the texts that have always bothered them about how Revelation uses the term forever and ever, when they finally under, I love seeing the light go on in their eyes and just the relief that comes over them when they see, oh, I can actually see some of God's mercy in this. That's why I love this subject. But that, that's just me. He wants to love you into heaven, not scare you out of hell. Yep. See, I used to think with this subject, all I had to do is prove that hell doesn't burn forever and I've done my job. But it's so much more than that. That's just intellectual knowledge. It's important intellectual knowledge but it is just intellectual, knowing, okay, hell doesn't burn forever. Okay, but what does that tell me about the cross? What does that tell me about God's love and character? That's what I need to answer. So, the Neville has used this subject in such a way as to mar the character of God. Seriously. Yeah. If you really believe that hell burns, and I'll, I'll use this term, for millions of 
and billions and trillions and quadrillions and septillions and sextillions and octillions of years, because I don't know what comes after octillion. <laughs> what does that tell you about God? I mean, you've ever burned yourself. I ask, have you ever burned yourself? And everybody raises their hand. And I say, how long did it take you before you had a... How long did it take your hand being in the fire before your brain told you, oh, that hurts, you better move it? A second. No, a second. So you're telling me, are we really willing to believe that God is going to inflict that kind of pain on people while they're screaming and writhing in pain, calling out for mercy. And for octillions of years, all through eternity, God's going to turn a deaf ears to their cry. And all the while, I'm going to be in the kingdom watching that and saying, Oh, God is love. That would make God worse than Hitler. It would make God worse than the devil himself. And when people begin to think through what this says about God's character, like, okay. But they, then they got to see the verses. Right now, I'm just giving an analogy with that. But they, they got to see the verses on this, at least those that are already have a Christian background anyway. So, I like to start with 2 Peter 3.9. Because 2 Peter 3.9 is that verse where it talks about, you know, God is not eager for people to be lost. He's eager to be saved. So we have to answer the question in the beginning. I, I ask them, is God a God who wants you to be saved, or is God someone who is eager for people to be lost? You know, and this verse tells me, no, God is doing everything for people to be saved. God doesn't want anyone to end up in hell. If they do, it won't be because God wanted it. It'll be because their choice. So we establish, okay, God wants people to be saved and the cross displays the extent of what God will do so that people can be saved. So I want to start with that right away. God's love. Then we use the parable of the tares in Matthew 13. And if you think about it, that parable right there in Matthew 13, that one parable answers the question of whether hell burns forever. And we just go through the parable because Jesus specifically says there that it's at the end of the harvest, you know, when the wheat and the tares are bound together and thrown in the fire. Therefore, Jesus has already told us hellfire burns at the end of the world, so no one's burning in hell right now. Not according to me, not according to some church, not according to Emmanuel, according to Jesus. Hellfire burns at the end of the world. Which makes sense because why would, how could God send someone, quote, to hell before judgment has occurred. That, that wouldn't be a sense. It wouldn't be fair. We don't even do that here on earth. He pulls you out of hell because he made a mistake. Right. Um, 2 Peter 3.7. I like to use that one. What's one of the good things about hell? What's the good news? The good news is Jesus uses hellfire to get rid of Satan and sin forever. It's what ushers in the perfect world where there is no more sin. And then we take time to talk about what does that perfect world look like that prophecy talks about. Hellfire actually ushers in the world where there's no pain, sorrow, suffering, where we're surrounded by the love of Jesus and the new heavens and the new earth. We start with the positive. What are some of the good things of hell? Uh, Malachi 4, everybody I'm sure uses that. I like to use Malachi 4 uh, because again it emphasizes that hell, it shows Jesus mercy. Hellfire has an end to it. 
Would God inflict that kind of pain on people? And then, this is where stories come in. Okay, Here, Here's where analogies come in that help people to understand. Jesus told stories because it's what they remember. So, I like to describe hell. I like people to imagine what would be like on the day hellfire burns and Jesus sees people he loves, people he's worked so hard to save, people whose attention he tried to get through preachers, through family, through circumstances of life, through pain and sorrow, trials. He's tried to get their attention. And they turned away. That there will be tears in the eyes of Jesus when hellfire burns. Because Jesus is losing children that he prepared a place for in heaven. And it helps people to understand it's not the traditional view where people picture, oh, God's in partnership with the devil. And he, oh, devil, here's another bad one. I'm sending him down to you. God's not in partnership with the devil. God, I believe on the day that hellfire burns, we're going to have to comfort God. Because his eyes will be filled with tears for ones that he is losing. And I want them to see that character of Jesus. And the illustration you can use to help people get this is the illustration of a mother losing a child. Now, I don't, I don't know how to illustrate this except just to act like you're the audience and just, just tell the story, and then you can, you can do with it what you want. So I would say to them, friends, I, I want you to imagine. I want you to imagine that you have four children, and you love these four children. And one day, just a terrible tragedy occurs, and you lose one of those children, and they pass away. And I, as your minister, I come to your home in order to comfort you and to help you through this difficult time. And as you're sitting there in the chair and you're weeping and crying and and telling me about how much you miss this child, what if I said to you, well, ma'am, I I know you're hurting. I I know this is a terrible tragedy, but ma'am, I know you lost one. But ma'am, you can still cheer up because you, you you have three other ones left. You can focus on them. As a minister, what would you say to me? And, and of course, the women will answer this question out loud. You, you, like you would slap me in the face and you would tell me to get out of your house. Because even though you have three children left, no one, no one will ever be able to take the place of the one that you lost. They will forever be in your heart. Friends, that's how God will feel if you're not in the kingdom of heaven. Nobody can take your place. He made you unique. He made you different. And there will forever be a void in God's heart if you choose not to follow Him. See, when, people, when you can present hell like that and people, people see this isn't a place God wants anybody to go. He didn't even create it for us anyway. He created it for the devil and his angels. And then we appeal with John, with John 3.16. That, that, adds, that adds the positive part to it. And then we do, I don't have it here, but we do take time to go through a couple of the difficult texts and explain why does Revelation use the term forever and ever and their smoke rises and you know we go into 
how the Bible uses hyperbole and how the Bible uses the word forever. You do have to do that. And I'm telling you, once people see how the Bible uses the word forever and they understand, oh, most of the time it means as long as the person shall live. Or in Jonah's case, it meant three days and three nights. So the Bible uses it very loosely in many places of Scripture. And so when I take the Bible's own definition of as long as a person shall live, and I apply that to Revelation where it says it burns forever and ever, oh, it's going to burn as long as the person lives. When life is snuffed out and they're turned to ashes, the fire goes out because the new heavens and the new earth is coming. And it makes sense. That would be the topic of why so many different denominations. Revelations 2, women and the remnant, because we weave, we weave through there showing, showing the slide from truth throughout history and then showing how God began to build it up you know, step by step. And when they see that, they begin to see that, okay, God did say he's going to have a movement in the last days of people from all different denominations who are going to come together in one last day movement. And then I show how that movement began in the 1800s and it became known as the Seventh-day Adventist movement. Because when you think about it, all the Seventh-day Adventist movement was in the 1800s is people from all different denominations saying, you know what, let's put away tradition and let's follow the Bible and the Bible alone. That's what the Adventist movement was in, in the 1800s. And of course, now that it's been around, you have people that are born into it. Nobody was born you know, into it back then. And I think when you show, and you can, you can watch it if you want on the, the, the link that I gave you, when, when people see how the devil has purposely tried to make it so confusing, and we address that. If you, were the, if you were the devil, what would you want to do? You would make it so confusing, hundreds of thousands of different doctrines with so many different churches, different preachers saying different things that you just give up, you throw up your hands and say, I give up. I'll never find the truth in this mess. And we'll talk about that. Yeah. But understand, once they've hit the remnant, this is assuming they've been to all the series and they've been able to connect the dots. And then when it comes to the remnant, they're able to see, okay, God said there would be a falling away from truth. And I, I outline, here's how it happened from the first century onward, Middle Ages. Then we go to the Protestant Reformation. Here's how God began to turn on the light again, little by little. We go through actually each reformer, not in great length, but each reformer. And they're, at, they're able to see at the end, okay, God said. The, rem, the remnant of his seed would keep the commandments of God, have the, have the faith of Jesus. It's hard for me to do it in like two minutes. <laughs> you know, you have to watch it to see. Yes, because we're, we're answer, asking the question, here's, here's what we've learned about Jesus in this topic. And what, what we do is, I actually use a decision card every night. <laughs> I, I learned this from Ron Cluzet. I have special cards for certain topics, testing topics, like accepting Jesus, salvation, or um, the Sabbath, uh, baptism, etc. But I have generic cards that we use at the end, and I, I don't think I have a copy of it on here. But on those generic cards, there's an option where they can submit a question, um, they can put a prayer request in the back, they can actually choose baptism from night one. They can choose baptism. They can say, I'd like to have a visit. And so we actually transition to those cards where people can then also submit questions, say they want a visit. And so as we talk about how this is Christ-centered, this also gives them a chance to respond. You'd be surprised how many people hand those cards in because you're, you're 
conditioning, I don't like that word, you're, you're training them to do that from the beginning. And if I might add one other thing before we go, it doesn't have to do with topics. When you do an evangelistic series, one, another way to really make it relational, if you have a prayer team, now I'm talking about a prayer, and I'm not talking about just praying for two minutes before the meeting starts. I'm talking about a prayer team that's going to meet together and pray like half hour before the meeting and keep praying through it because what we'll do is, because I talked about this yesterday in our seminar, on the generic response card, I'm constantly saying, hey, if you have a prayer request, put it on the back because we have a prayer team here at the meetings and they're meeting meeting every single night. And so if you have something that's near and dear to your heart, a friend, a family member, a son or a daughter, some situation in your life, if you want to write it on the back, just whatever you want to say, we give this to the prayer team and you can know that there are people specifically praying for your request. When you say that each night, I am telling you, people hand in prayer requests. And so I take them, we give them to the prayer team and they're praying over them. So not only do you have the power of prayer, but... An easy, simple thing to do is either I can do it or I can train the prayer team. Since these people registered, you probably have their phone number. So I can call them on the phone. Hi, Mary. Hey, this is Pastor Dave from the Forecasting Hope Seminar. How are you this morning? Well, listen, I'm just calling because I wanted you to know we, we saw your prayer request that handed in about your son, and I just wanted you to know that we have been praying for your son each night of the meetings. What do you think that's going to communicate to Mary? Okay, that's gold, man. I'm telling you. That's as good as a visit in the home because she's never going to forget that. Hey, Mary, would you mind if I had a prayer with you right now for your son? Who's going to say no? So you have a prayer on the phone or I can say, well, Mary... If you want, could you, could you come maybe 15 minutes earlier tonight at the meeting? I'd like to just take a moment and just, just spend five minutes. And let's pray together about your son. Would that be okay? And man, if she comes 15 minutes early and I spend five minutes with her praying for her son, that is going to make a connection with Mary. It's going to keep her coming to those meetings. And it's so easy to do. You can train your prayer team how to call or... You can, you can buy the you know, little Christian you know, thank you cards or whatever. You can get them at a Christian bookstore. And train your prayer team to write notes to the people. Okay, here's Bob. He's praying about, he's losing his job. You know, hey, dear Bob, we just wanted you to know we're praying about your job situation. And we believe that God, God will never leave you nor forsake you. We're praying for you. Uh, prayer team of forecasting hope. Put it in the mail if you have the address. It'll get there in a day or two because I'm assuming it's local. What does that communicate? You can, I think, I think a phone call or a, a old-fashioned card is more personal. But if, if all you have is an email address, then you don't have a choice, you know. Or, or you wait till they come to the meeting and you just go to them. That's why if you're the speaker or whoever, you're there an hour before the meeting starts. You're there for a while afterwards because you're just walking around connecting with people. Once you learn their names, oh, there's Mary. Mary, we've been praying for your son. Got to have a word of prayer with you right now. I may not be talking about the topics of the meeting at that point. But what that's doing is building trust. And when I'm building trust, it's going to open the door for me to be able to talk about challenging things when they come. Because one, one evangelistic principle, and we probably need to end with this, You will never win someone to Jesus 
who does not trust you first. Mm -hmm. And so establishing trust is a big deal when it comes to soul winning. And it's a big deal when it comes to evangelistic meetings. Because if, uh, if all I think it's about is presenting and throwing doctrine at them, I'm, I'm not going to get decisions. Now again, don't misunderstand me. People need to know right doctrine. Because for every doctrine I misunderstand, I am misunderstanding something about the character of Jesus. Right? If I don't understand about hell, I'm misunderstanding something about his character. So I'm not saying doctrine isn't important. I don't go for that. I don't believe that. But what I'm saying is i got to go past just the intellectual part of it. Okay, well you guys have been so kind. We, we got through maybe seven, six or seven of them. But if you go to the website at the end, you can, uh, let me put those websites up there, and then we shall depart. We've got to do this one. I love this quote. <laughs> Evangelism 141. Your success will not depend so much upon your knowledge and accomplishments as upon your ability to do what? Find your way to the heart. See, it's not about how many texts you got memorized and you can prove it, etc. And don't get me wrong, we need to know why we believe what we believe. But she also is telling us decisions come when you find your way to the heart. And that's why there are some people that have PhDs from seminaries and are not soul winners because they don't know how to find their way to the heart. And you can have someone in Africa who's barely had a fifth grade education and they've won 100 people to Jesus because they know how to reach the heart. As I've mentioned in previous episodes, one of the things we did at the Propel Conference was the practice of reflection. Don't just take in this fire hose of information. Stop for a moment and think about how this could be applied to your ministry. At the Propel Conference, we even offered some reflection questions for you to consider. So right now, take a moment to pause and reflect on what you just heard in this episode. What was the big idea for you? How are you going to apply this in your own ministry context? And when the episode finishes in another minute or so, I encourage you to pause for five or ten minutes and just let your mind wander. This reflection time can be really powerful. All right, that's it for this episode. We'd love to hear from you. You can shoot us an email at podcast at propelconference.org. And please plan to join us for the 2024 Propel Conference coming back to Vancouver, Washington, April 28 to May 1. Special thanks to David Kleindens for speaking at the Propel Conference this year and to Pacific Press for sponsoring this episode. This has been the Propel Podcast, inspiration and training to grow your church. The Propel Podcast is sponsored by the North Pacific Union Conference of Seventh-day Adventists. The event recording services were provided by Adventist Learning Community, and the podcast is produced by the crew at Sermon View Evangelism Marketing. I'm Larry Witzel, wishing you God's richest blessing in your evangelistic journey. Please join us again next time for another episode of the Propel Podcast.